You can make a few million dollars, $10 million being really good at marketing and sales. You could become a multimillionaire doing that. It's just, you're not gonna build a massive, massive fortune unless the thing you sell is good. Welcome to a special edition episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, where we're looking back at some of our most impactful conversations over the past few months. The real big obvious answer of why people don't make more money is they're just not that good. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at our conversations with the best-selling author and founder of Acquisition.com, Alex Hormozzi, accomplished endurance athlete and the founder and CEO of Spartan, Joe DeSetta, renowned trial attorney and partner at Wright Gray, Daryl Gray, and the New York Times best-selling author and professor at NYU's Stern School of Business, Adam Alter. If you're moving, if you're making progress, you demonstrate to yourself that you're not stuck. And that's very important because the emotional consequences of being stuck are quite damaging. And the sense of progress, that sense of velocity that comes from progress is very important for making further progress. So stuckness compounds, gets worse over time, but so does unsticking compound and get better over time. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick things off, we revisit the conversation I had with Alex Hermosi, founder and managing partner of Acquisition.com. With his innovative approach to marketing and sales, he has scaled numerous seven and eight figure organizations. And on the road to success, entrepreneurs typically undergo remarkable transformations, a journey of evolution. So how did Alex's own evolution unfold? So first thing I did was I started an online training charity business so that people would pay, but then I would donate the money. And that was just kind of like get my feet wet with people giving me money, even though I didn't take it personally. Then I quit my job and asked the same people who were paying the charity if they would pay me instead so that I could like eat. I was like, I'm the charity now. And they were all good with it. From there, I started my first gym. From that gym, opened up uh, five more. From there, I had a mentor say that, you know, he was like, you're really good at running gyms. You shouldn't be owning more gyms. You should uh, kind of teach other people how to run gyms. And so uh, from there, we did uh, turnarounds for two years. So we'd fly out to brick and mortar gyms, kind of put all of our systems in place and turn it around in 30 days. That was kind of the, the offer. And then from there, that became really logistically painful. You know, you've got eight sales guys going out to eight different locations across the nation every single month on the road, 21 to 24 days a month, just tough for families, et cetera. And so um, by a stroke of luck, there's a million very sad stories in between here, but I was supposed to launch six or eight gyms the next month. And we had decided to pivot to go direct to consumer selling weight loss because we were, we were familiar with that. And I told the gym owners that we were supposed to launch that I wasn't going to do it. And one of the guys was like, hey, could you just show me what you're doing rather than flying out here? And I was like, sure, how much? And I just picked a really high number and he said, yes. And I was like, holy cow, that was pretty cool. And so then I 
told all the other guys the same thing. And they were like, how much? And I just kept increasing the number and they all said it was fine. And then I called all the gyms I did the turnarounds for and said, remember that thing I did? Can I just license the model to you? And they were like, yeah, that's fine. And so um, that's when we got into licensing. That was 2017. Uh, that was like May, April, May of 2017. And then it took off like a rocket. And so then, uh, you know, 5,000 locations later, <laughs> that's where Jim launches today. We started a supplement company in between there to sell through that distribution base. So that was e-commerce. And then we started Allen, which is a software company that worked leads for brick and mortar businesses. That was the next year after that, all selling through that same audience. And then in 2021, in December, we sold two of those companies. So Jim Launch and Prestige Labs to American Pacific Group, which is a private equity group out of San Francisco. And we sold that for 46.2. And then we sold the software company for an undisclosed amount to strategic buyer. So we sold 75% of that uh, in an all-stock deal. And so uh, from there, we started our family office, which is acquisition.com, which we started the day after we sold. And uh, now we have, I think, 11 portfolio companies. And I know you, you've worked with many, many different founders. I mean, in, in all sorts of different businesses, services-based businesses, software, I mean, the, the full gamut, like, are there any particular traits that you've seen in the, in the most successful founders that kind of separate the most successful from the least successful? Yeah. They're humble. If you have humility, you can do a lot because if somebody's humble, then they can accept feedback. If they can accept feedback, then they can change. Basically, if someone doesn't have humility, then it means that whoever they are day one has to be the person that they need to be at day 1000. Because if they can't admit a deficit, then they can't improve. And so humility is by far the biggest one. Beyond that, it's they have to have drive. They have to have some reason that they're going to do it, whether it's away from fuel or towards fuel, like they have to have some sort of drive. There's a big study on this that I've been quoted a lot for, even though it's not my study, but it's, you know, the three most common traits that they've seen, you know, it's not the early wake up time. It's not the healthy eating. It's not the cold plunges or the affirmations, but the, the three common traits were that they had a superiority complex. So they believe that they can do big things. They want to chase after big goals. The second is that they have crippling insecurity and that they feel there'll never be enough and that they have impulse control. And so if you have a big goal and you have big fuel and you don't stray the path and you do it for a very long period of time, you'll probably win. Yeah. It's almost like, I think there's a book, it's called like the manic edge to a degree. It, it, it's like, you almost have to be crazy in a sense. I mean, you, you think about the entrepreneur and the idea of starting a business, the risk that you take on. I mean, obviously, I mean, I think Shark Tank maybe has popularized this to an extent, but when you look at the reality of it, it's not always a great proposition. I think now with a lot of like social media culture, it's this idea of working remotely from your laptop. Everybody's making 40 grand a month. I don't know why, why people get stuck on this number, but it just, I don't know that it really depicts an accurate portrayal of, of what this journey is. I think the average small business owner takes home like $50,000 a year. I mean, the average small business owner makes the same as the median household income. So from that sense, it's one person versus a household. So I guess in that sense, they have to make a little bit more money. They also take on significantly more risk personally in order to do that. So I, I agree with you. I think that the, I think right now it's in vogue. It's cool. I mean, it is the way to make the most money. It's also the way to lose the most money. So <laughs> at definition, the, the, the highest risk, highest reward game, but you know, to quote Warren Buffett, I think the reason business is so risky is because people don't know what they're doing. And that's kind of the nature of it is that when you start, you're ignorant biggest debt you pay is the tax of not knowing, right? You're not knowing what you do. He also says that it's, it's only risky if you don't know what you're doing. And so once you do know what you're doing, then there's not nearly as much risk in business, but the only way to know what you're doing is to get in the game, which means you have to incur lots of risk to get in. And then the more you play, the better you get and the less risky it is and the higher reward is. Yeah. It's like in, in many cases, it's like the, uh, the solutions, making good decisions. How do you make good decisions, experience, how do you gain ex experience, bad decisions yeah, and, right. you know, and the cycle repeats. You know, Hopefully something you said, people's bad decisions to throw that yeah, which is ultimately the goal, right? Which is where right. the, certainly the, uh, the, the humility comes in. Something you shared before that I, I thought was very interesting is just the differences between how the most successful people view time and their approach to the time horizon. If you could elaborate on that. You can pretty easily 
tell how successful an entrepreneur is by looking at two elements of time. One is the increments of time they speak in. So if they talk in decades, they talk in multiple decades, they talk in lifetimes, they talk in generations, I can almost guarantee you it's going to be a significantly more successful entrepreneur than the one who talks about next week, next month, even next quarter. And it's such a small thing, but it's, it's pervasive. Like you can hear it in conversation. You can immediately know, oh, this guy's only doing this much because the only way to do really big things is to think on a much longer time horizon. The second component is how they manage the micro, which is if you look at someone's calendar and how they allocate their most scarce resource, which is time, you can see where they're going to be in six or 12 months. So if you look at the calendar as the balance sheet of someone's time asset and how they allocate it, their time budget, then you will see where they're going to get their returns. And so if we look at a founder and we look at their calendar, we can tell how the company's going. We can usually see how we need to fix it because fundamentally most entrepreneurs work all the hours of the day. Most of them do, right? And so if they're not making the amount of money that they want to make, it's because they're doing the wrong stuff. And that's usually the biggest issue. And they think they need to work harder, but they've already maxed out their hours, which means fundamentally they're wrong. They're seeing a distorted reality. They think this is going to work and it is not. Are there particular things that, that you see? I mean, just even, even looking like at an entrepreneur's calendar where you're like, okay, well that, you can tell right away, okay, this is not optimized or the focus isn't in the right place. Like what, what types of things stick out? Well, the single common trait that every entrepreneur has to get over over time is relinquishing control. So entrepreneurship is a continual giving up of control at all levels. And so whatever they're doing is usually the thing that they need to be able to give up and transfer to somebody else in order to get further and further above the business and get more leverage. And so in the beginning, you have to give up delivery or you have to give up selling or you have to give up promoting. You have to give up something or administrative tasks. And you look at your calendar and you say, which of these things is most easy to replace in the marketplace and is the cheapest one that I can replace. And you replace the first one that gives you the most time for the least amount of money. And then you're like, great, now I should fill my time up with the thing that makes me more money. And fundamentally, that is the game, is you just continue to trade up the time until you have bought all of your time back, and then you can just do all the highest level leverage activities, and leverage just being defined as getting more for what you put in. Well, this is a concept that I think when people hear it, they, they probably will nod along, and yet you and I both know this. I think so many entrepreneurs struggle with it and struggle with that relinquishment of control. No one can do it as well as they can. No one can do it quite the way they do. What's the answer there? Like, How, how do you get somebody to the point where they actually start doing it? confrontation. This is why you're poor. You can keep doing what you're doing. It's just, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And so the question is whether you want to keep getting what you're getting or you're willing to change something. I mean, it's the same as somebody trying to lose weight saying, I want to keep eating the same diet, but if I look the same, you're like, yeah. So you have a diet of time that you continue to eat or let something else eat your time every single day. And you expect the outcome to look different. And it's just not true. And so I think just a very logical breakdown where you have to confront it. You have to confront reality. And a lot of entrepreneurs are delusional. Sometimes in a good way, you know, you have to be optimistically delusional in a certain capacity to be an entrepreneur. But a lot of times that delusion takes control and they believe the false statements that you just said, right? Which is like, no one can do it like I can do it. I'm irreplaceable, et cetera, et cetera. But like every single human on planet earth is replaced in a hundred years. And the likelihood is that if you were doing it and you're also doing other things, then somebody doing full-time what you're doing will be better than you are. And I can virtually guarantee that a hundred people doing full-time what you're doing are going to be better than you are. A lot of entrepreneurs learn the wrong lessons from experiences. So we talked about having experiences earlier, right? And you make the lesson, et cetera. But the thing is, is that most people are on the wrong lessons. So I'll give you an example. A small business owner hires the first salesperson. They're like, I'm going to give up control of sales. I'm going to give to this person. They're going to start selling. And of course the person takes. Okay. Because they also don't know how to hire, manage, recruit, train salespeople because they don't have that skill set yet either. But they bring this person on, the person fails, right? There's lots of lessons you can get from that. But one lesson that's common is that salespeople don't work. 
right? Or no salesperson can sell like I can, right? And so then as soon as they have that belief forever, until that belief has changed, they will not make more money. And the thing is, is there's a lot of those salesman beliefs at every single level of entrepreneurship. But the correct lesson is phrasing the thing that didn't work as deficiency personally, which is, okay, this salesman didn't work. I do not know how to, and then insert the problem, recruit, hire, train, manage a salesperson. Great. That's solvable. Let's go solve that. And then that is the process all the way up. But you have to admit it. It's like AA, right? You got to admit you have a problem. And until they do, and that's where the humility comes in, in, into play, that's what plateaus. Many entrepreneurs that they cannot admit that anyone else could do better than them. And most people would do better than you. And I think it's a much better belief. They're like, everyone could do everything better than me. It's great. I'm not needed. And that's the point. You want to own the business, not have the business own you. It's interesting. It's like so many entrepreneurs I meet, I, you know, I don't know if this is direct correlation exists, but it seems like the more successful they are, I mean, when you really start getting up there, eight figures, nine figures, 10 figures beyond, it's like you start to see greater levels of humility. And I wonder if to an extent, and this doesn't apply to everyone, but it's always striking to me how someone can still have ego if they have built a business from nothing. And just, just the humbling process of even building an organization, the lessons you have to learn, the challenge that you experience, the pain in many cases to come out of that with ego, but yet the ones that know all the answers, have it all figured out. No, I'm good. I already read that book. I already, you know, I already heard that. Like they're the ones that seem to be struggling the most. I agree. I also think that you can have situational ego because there are definitely some very wealthy people who are very successful who do have egos who are self-made. Like I, I can attest to that. There are. There are also many, many, many who are very humble in general, but I think it's also domain specific. You can be humble, humble in business and, and arrogant with women. You can be arrogant with your physique, but humble. And, you know what I mean? So I think it's a little bit more nuanced overall. That being said, there's totally people who are arrogant in everything they do. But I do think that it's more domain specific. And even within the business, somebody might have an ego around how good they are at marketing, but not an ego around how good they are at HR, right? And so it really comes down to how do they associate their self-worth with something? However close the action is to the association they have with their identity and their worth, the harder it is to peel away from their grip. Like a lot of entrepreneurs who are promotional or product-driven entrepreneurs don't have any problem outsourcing finance. Like it's not like they don't have a huge thing with that, right? But they have a huge problem if someone wants to take over product or take over promotion or whatever for the business. And so it's because they just derive their self-worth from that. And so that's, that's why a lot of the entrepreneurship is a head game. Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with Joe DeSena. As the founder of Spartan, he's made it his mission to challenge people both mentally and physically. During our conversation, Joe shed light on the perceived softening of society and shared his perspective on what he refers to as the complacency epidemic. Think about how long we've been on the planet as a species. Think about every passing generation. You could watch any movie that takes place early 1900s, mid 1900s, early 1800s, and you can see the difference between the way we lived as a species then and the way we live now. It's no surprise. At the end of the day, we all want to make a living, so we sell each other stuff that makes our lives possibly easier, simpler, more satisfying. And every time we buy those things and we sell those things to each other, our lives become easier. Look, the worst one, this is it right here, the phone. The phone is a disaster. When I was young, I actually had to find a pay phone. It could be two blocks away. I had to walk two blocks. Then if I didn't have a quarter, in my pocket, I had to go find the quarter. I had to get changed. And maybe I walked another block to get changed. And by the way, a few generations before that, there was no pay phone, right? And a few generations before that, there was no car. Like, we were horseback. So, like, we are living 
in a smaller and smaller comfort bubble every day to the point where we get upset if the Wi-Fi is not working on an airplane that is traveling 600 miles per hour at 30,000 feet. That is upsetting to us. We are crazy. I'm just gonna rant here. The number one motivator for a human being, number one motivator, it's not sex, not drugs, not rock and roll, not food. Number one motivator for a human being is the avoidance of discomfort. That's legacy hardware and software, kept us alive on the planet, make sure we don't go out and freeze to death or sweat to death or fall off a cliff. We avoid discomfort at all costs. The brain senses discomfort and says, oh, time out, relax. Check your phone, don't go do that workout. Drink your coffee, don't go outside, it's raining, right? We don't even know that's happening. And so our citizens, the folks around us in our communities sell us stuff that helps us potentially avoid discomfort, right? Six minute abs, five minute abs, four minute abs, chocolate cake that's not gonna get you fat, Netflix you could tune into for 12 hours a day. And it's interesting because to your point, as we have more and more of these comforts that do make our lives easier, we've got air conditioning, you know, all, all this stuff. At the same time, one could also argue that as a society, we've never been more unhappy. Right? There's never been greater instances of anxiety and depression and all these things, and yet you have more comforts than ever. It almost seems like it's an innate part of the human condition to almost need a degree of like earned dopamine, right? You actually seek out adversity in some sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to try my best to explain this. So I, I've been thinking about this for 42 years. I started 42 years ago. I had a kid next to me. I used to clean swimming pools at a very young age. And the kid next to me said he was depressed. And I didn't even know what that word meant. I was like... I don't even understand what you're saying. We have work to do today. And certainly there are people that have chemical imbalances or they've got biological situations, but most of the folks that are depressed are depressed for the reason you just said, which is we haven't done the work. Imagine a whiteboard. Imagine you and I had a whiteboard and imagine we drew a horizontal black line on that whiteboard and that represented your life. And then we drew another black line that represented my life. And anybody listening can draw a line representing their life. And that life, however we live it, is what we consume. Uh, the work we consume every day, the, the food we consume, the marriage we have, that's that line. That represents where we are in life. Now, all of us, all of us are chasing more. We wanna move up the board. We want a little bit nicer car, we want a nicer house. Some of us want a better spouse, we want better kids. Whatever those things are we're chasing, if we only had more, we could only move the line up, we would be happier, right? We're never happy though, because it's never enough. As soon as the line moves up an inch, we'd be happier if it went up one more inch, two more inches, it never stops. It occurred to me that the reason I'm always happy, although some people don't think I'm happy, the reason I'm always happy is because I go in the other direction every day. I go below the line, I take stuff away, I start suffering as soon as I wake up. And then when I get back to the line, when I walk back in my house and I have a wife and children and they're healthy and I have a meal, I'm like, well, I'm not doing burpees. I'm not taking a cold shower. I'm not running 20 miles. Like, this is pretty nice. And so unless you're really, really hungry at times, right, you're not gonna enjoy the thing you're eating. I saw a great movie I saw on a plane the other day called The Menu. You guys gotta watch it, it's a crazy movie. 
there's a scene, there's a moment, just like in any movie, right? Any visual, you see the chef cutting this piece of chicken. It looks juicy. It looks good. Where my mind went right away when I saw it was, and this happens all the time when I see imagery or movies about food, is the food tastes so much better when I think back to those moments where I was like hungry for two weeks straight, going across Alaska in waist deep snow, 30 below temperatures. When I finally had a meal, a piece of chicken like I saw in that movie, that was the best chicken I ever had in my life. It could have still had feathers in it. Blood could have been squirting out of it. It was the best chicken I ever had because I was so damn hungry. And so here's a great story. You wanna hear a great story? My kids and my friend's kids, we decided to go for a hike, I don't know, five, six years ago in Squamish outside of Vancouver. Me and my buddy take the kids up overnight, way up in the mountains. It's a crazy night. We're not prepared because it started out a very wonderful spring day that turned into a snowstorm and it was crazy. We almost ate one of the children to survive. But anyway, when we came off the mountain, the kids wanted to stop at a Wendy's, which was unacceptable to me. We had to drive the extra hour to Vancouver and go get healthy food, but they broke me because for 24 hours they'd been out. We'd been on this hiking expedition. It was a matter of survival. And so I stopped and I said, everybody gets one small order of French fries. We had six children. My son tripped after we got the French fries and the French fries fell all over the floor of this Wendy's. Well, these six kids, my kids in there and their friends, dove on the ground and started eating the French fries off the floor. They were the best French fries they'd ever had. 48 hours earlier, if somebody would have touched their French fry on the table on their tray, they were, I can't eat that. My brother touched it. My point is, get yourself really hungry every day and you'll enjoy every morsel of your life. And it seems like doing hard things is the is the secret to happiness, right? Not material possessions or anything like that. But for somebody who's listening, and I love your perspective on this because I know you're going to roll your eyes as soon as I ask this question. Some people might see toughness or mental toughness as some sort of an innate quality. But I imagine you were not this way from birth. No. At the end of the day, we are all really tough at birth. And then we get coddled. We get told what we can and can't do. We get fed in our little cages in our zoo with climate controlled cages and food on demand. How the hell would we be practicing tough? We don't need to do anything. We don't have to hunt an animal. We don't have to walk to get to a phone. We don't have to do anything. How would we possibly be practicing tough? But yet we practice cooking, we practice piano, we practice academics, right? But we don't practice tough. And then we're expected in life when the shit hits the fan and everything's up against us and we're facing obstacles, we're expected to perform. But you've been sitting in your cage in the zoo. You haven't done anything hard. How would you possibly perform when you face the obstacle? So what would be some steps to practicing hard? For someone to, to want to get started, they want to challenge themselves, what would you recommend? I know, I know you do cold showers, I've done cold plunges. It seems like you were actually doing those before it became popular. You were doing it years ago. Yeah, my mom, thankfully, my mom found all this stuff back in the 70s. She had a very forward-thinking Indian guru that she met. And so all this stuff she was pushing back in 1972, 73. And I grew up around it. I pushed back on it. I didn't. I thought it was all hokey and ridiculous and crunchy. But later on, I embraced it. Look, you've got to manufacture some adversity in your life. If this was 1,500 years ago and we were doing this podcast on a cup and a string, I would be saying, 
we need more penicillin. We need more couches. We definitely need an invention called Netflix so we can relax a little because life is tough. We stand in horse shit every day. We're getting attacked by our enemies. Like we need a softer life, but that's not the case for us in the first world. And so I'm certainly not asking you to check yourself into a prison. I'm not asking yourself to row a rowboat across the Atlantic, but do you think you could wake up early and maybe go sweat and breathe heavy? Could you muster up enough energy to like at least take care of yourself and earn your breakfast, right? Could you get in a cold shower? Because for most of our existence on the planet, we didn't have hot showers, we had cold showers. There's a ton of biological benefits to a cold shower. Could you knock that out and suffer a little there? Maybe put your phone away for an hour or two, suffer there. Maybe skip a meal. Could you do that? So like, I'm not asking for a lot. You're not joining Shackleton's expedition and getting stuck in the ice for two years or climbing Everest with Sir Edmund Hillary. So like, yeah, manufacture a little adversity in your life and stop complaining because nobody cares. I think a lot of the resistance is perhaps I think too few people have been on the other side of that. So I imagine it's probably rare that somebody runs a Spartan race and turns around and says, well, I really regret doing that, right? It's it's usually probably filled with like joy and achievement and high fives and things like that. Same thing with a cold shower or even if you're, you're jumping into a, you know, a cold tub of water or anything like that. My daughter who sees me do this in the morning, she always asks me, she says, Dad, do you enjoy that? And I don't know if my answer is that I enjoy it, but I feel great afterwards. So what would you say to that, that those who just haven't experienced the other side of adversity? We had a tagline for a long time. We still use it here and there. You'll know at the finish line, right? You'll know when you get out of the cold plunge. You'll know when you get out of the cold shower. You'll know at the end of the burpees. You'll know at the end of the Spartan race or the Tough Mudder event. If you came home and your dog was sitting on the couch watching TV, smoking a cigarette, painting her nails, and putting her hair in a bun, that would seem a little strange, right? Dogs don't do that, they're animals. If you came home on the other hand and your dog was chasing a bird in the backyard and running through the mud, completely out of breath and starving, and ha like you'd say, oh, okay, that's a happy animal. That's the other side of doing something hard. Look, if you're listening to this and you're completely happy in your life and it's optimal and every day you've got a kick in your step, you're full of enthusiasm, it can't get any better, you've got tremendous gratitude towards everything and everyone around you, Keep doing what you're doing. But the numbers and the data show otherwise. The numbers and data say we're sick, we're depressed, we're fat, we're eating shit food. Like, time to change. What was the catalyst for you? I mean, I, I recall in a former life you were working on Wall Street as an equities and derivatives trader. It seems your lifestyle was very different then. What, what was the catalyst for you in this evolution? Well, mom, back in the early 70s, right? Mom found this. She pushed it. She introduced me to a 3,100-mile foot race in Queens, New York that still exists today called the Transcendence Run. You run around a one-mile loop 3,100 times. That was the beginning of the exploration. But then, without much knowledge, I signed up for something ridiculous. I did the Iditarod by foot across Alaska. Normally, participants do it with dog sleds, and I didn't have the dogs or the sled. It was 30 below and it was waist deep snow and almost died out there and felt so alive that I could actually remember. I actually have this instinct of feeling alive and having tremendous appreciation for food because I remember how hungry I was. I remember how cold I was, right? Listen, I, I was telling somebody yesterday, when I go to bed at night, my whole life, when I go to bed, I giggle in bed. As soon as I get horizontal, I giggle. It's a funny response, but 
The reason I giggle when I reflect on it is I worked so hard, I'm so tired that I'm so happy to be laying down. So if you're laying down at night and you can't get to bed and you're tossing and turning, you didn't push hard enough, right? If you're eating a meal, think about when a child eats a meal and they're complaining about the broccoli, they're not hungry enough. They're not hungry enough. They didn't earn that meal. Because if they're hungry, they'll eat their finger. I know, <laughs> I've been there, right? You need to earn these tremendous gifts we get in life, a bed, food, a cold shower. It's a gift. I still want to revisit this perspective because my wife, she gives me a hard time about this because I say I need to earn everything, right? I need to earn this meal. I'm going to earn this nap. If we're going to watch this show, this Netflix, whatever it is, like I'm going to go do something to earn. And she's like, why do you always have to earn things and, and do it that way? And for me, it brings me gratification. I don't know if there was a point in my life where I decided to do things that way, but what do you think separates people who approach things from that perspective versus those that just indulge? I don't think they know any better. I think, like you said, I don't think they've ever gotten a taste of the finish line. I don't know if they've gotten a taste of what it feels like to just be so happy with what you've done and so relaxed with what you achieved, right? So unless you've gotten a little taste of that, how would you know? If you grew up in a traditional household these days and you're not consuming great food, you're eating a lot of processed foods, you're complacent, you don't know what you don't know. You're not pushing that hard. You don't know what you're capable. Like, how would you know? So I pushed my wife pretty hard. When we met, she came out and did a bunch of these races with me and it was awesome. She got them done and look, she thinks I'm nuts. And she did this stuff with me. And she's like, I don't understand. Like when, when do we finally get to relax? When do you stop turning the hot water heater off in the house? because it's a little ridiculous. When do you stop pushing the kids to speak Mandarin? Every day, it's exhausting. I don't know, I, like if I didn't squeeze the most out of life, if I didn't push really hard, I'd have regrets. And for me, regrets would be worse than the upfront pain of actually just doing the work. Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with Daryl Gray, one of the most respected trial attorneys in the nation. Throughout his extensive career, Daryl has established himself as a formidable advocate of justice both in and out of the courtroom. During our conversation, he shed light on the pivotal moments and decisions that led him to establish his own firm, Wright Gray Trial Lawyers. The decision to start my own practice was out of necessity. I had a couple of jobs and it was never something that I really felt comfortable doing. I struggled with trying to figure out who I was in the space. Who am I? And what kind of lawyer am I going to be? If you don't know what kind of person you are, how do you know what kind of lawyer you're going to be? So I kept struggling with what I saw other lawyers doing and what I, how I saw other practices set up. And I was never comfortable with that. I realized that I had to figure out what made sense for me. And that was the biggest struggle throughout the whole process of going from graduating law school and building a relatively successful eight-figure law firm at this point now. So and you're talking about I graduated law school in 2008 and the process for me had a lot of ebb and flow. At one point in time, this was back in maybe 2015, I wanted to leave the practice of law because I just felt like I didn't fit in. Like I felt like if I'm looking at what everybody else is doing, I'm not like that. I don't look at people like dollar signs. I don't look at people as if they are somebody that's less than me. So all of the lawyers around me that I saw and that I knew from law school they had that kind of mindset. So 
In 2015, I was like, okay, I got enough cases. I can pull out a couple of million dollars. I can go do something else that's going to be more fulfilling for me. It makes me more comfortable because I was starting to have a lot of insecurities about who I was as a lawyer. Maybe I wasn't doing this right. Maybe I wasn't built for this career that I thought I, you know, even though I didn't know, I thought this was, I made the right decision because growing up, y'all, you can be a lawyer, doctor, any chief. I chose to be a lawyer. So the one thing that I can point to that really changed and it was a, a lightning bolt moment was when I went to um, the trial lawyers college, Jerry Spence trial lawyers college. And I went there without kind of knowing I went there on a whim. I applied, I got in and I said to myself, I said, you know what? I'm going to shut it down for a month. Cause it takes like three weeks or whatever, three and a half weeks to go out there and go through the process. I just went out there. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how it was going to be as a profound effect on my life as it was. And when I got out there and I started to realize well, damn, <laughs> there is a different way of doing this. And there's a different way of accepting people who, for who they are and loving them and advocating for them. And when I tell you that completely changed everything in terms of the way I approach the practice of law. Now I'm more comfortable doing what I do and living my life every day than I ever have been. But I still struggle because with the success that has come with practicing law and focusing on doing things that serve others, I still, it's like I'm dealing with a bit of survivor guilt and imposter syndrome. It's a bit of that, a bit of this, but it's all pain. It's a struggle every single day. And I always try to figure out, like, I can't believe that I just won this case for X amount of dollars. And I got friends that, I, that, that are doing 30 years in the penitentiary that I grew up with and I played in the dirt with. That's the kind of stuff that I deal with on a day-to-day basis. And I've had people that I grew up with you know, see me and just reach out and be like, hey, Daryl, I'm so proud of you. And I'm looking like, I'm the still the same person. You know, my Instagram handle is still D Gray. And it's for a reason. Like, I'm the same person that I was when I grew up. And that's what I think keeps me in a position to to work as hard as I do to be successful. Yeah. And I want to elaborate on that, this, that kind of that crisis, if you will, in, in the sense that early on thinking, is this for me? Am I built for this? And now seeing that and I could do it the way, the way you're running the practice today, it's actually leading to a very successful practice. You're able to help a lot of people and just forging your own path. I'm just wondering what were some of the things that were some of the disconnects in terms of just questioning, like, is this for me? Is this how a practice is run versus now being fully bought into your way of doing things? The greatest disconnect was just like the human aspect, the human element. Like, you know, I had one instructor at the trial lawyers college tell me, you already know what people are coming here to learn. We're enriching it for you because you already get it, you, all, you, you just have that in you. And I think that the biggest struggle always has been, what do you do to make sure that you always have your finger on the pulse of what's important for your community? Like, I'm always looking to be a champion and a servant to others. That's all I do, like that's my whole, my whole business model. I think the money is a byproduct of doing that, right? You're going to make money. This is what, a, a $400 billion industry? You know, a lot of people don't understand how much money floats around the legal industry. Legal services is a huge, huge industry compared to, you know, oil and gas and insurance and tech, all these industries that we know about. So the money is there. But the thing that sets you apart, and I think the thing that's going to always survive whether it be, you know, the rise of AI, whether it be other changes like hedge funds coming in and all of this stuff, which everybody's concerned about now, you have to keep your finger on the pulse of what a servant should be doing for the people that need your help the most. And that's the that's John every day. 
you know, if you're not looking at it from that standpoint, then you're not going to create a long lasting survivable business model. Obviously your practice has grown tremendously as the practice scales. What kind of challenges that introduce? I mean, obviously with, with thousands of clients, it's, it's hard to get to know each one individually. So how do you scale that when making sure that you have that level of attention to detail for, for every client, every case? You know, that's, that's one of the biggest struggles. That's one of the hardest things to do when you're growing it. Practice starts to, to blossom. You know, like I, I talk about, you know, just AI, for instance. I, I can't wait till it gets to a point where I can replicate myself through artificial intelligence because, you know, you can't expect everybody to be you. That's impossible. Nobody's going to have your DNA. Like I said before, everybody's a one of one. And I know a lot of times my clients struggle with, I want Daryl to represent me. I want Daryl on my case. Well, if you got 1,500 clients, then you can't represent everybody. Because I've, I've created this relationship with the community where they like us, they know us, and they trust us. So when you start to have that kind of connection with the community, they bring you very serious cases. And they're important cases. They're life-changing cases if they're done right for our clients. So for me, I'm really, really invested in making sure that my team understands there are certain boxes that we have to check in an attorney-client relationship. It goes past just, oh, we want to do a quantum study to see how much a case is worth. And then we want to put X amount of energy into it. And we want to you know, make sure that we check these boxes when it comes to pushing the case through litigation. Everybody knows how to do that. But do you know how to care? Do you know how to make the sacrifices that are needed to put this client first? That's what they hired you for. And I try to be very cognizant of the people that we bring into our fold because we're in creating an environment where everybody understands what it means to be selected by these people in the community. And that's the hardest thing. I, it, does, it comes with all these challenges, but you try to teach and coach based upon, look, we drill this, we're talking about core values and all this stuff. It all, it all centers around being client-centric, being client-focused, being community-centric. The model for my firm is for the culture, for the community, for you. Each one of those tenants have a distinct meaning for the culture. That means that we understand what you guys are going through out there and we're here to champion it for the community. We want to raise everybody up. We want to show that there's unity amongst everybody, but we also want to make sure that we collectively understand what's important for our society and our community. And for you, it's an individualized approach. Like we want you to know that you matter. There is a point in your life to where you can say they cared about me and they did what was right by me. And it's, it's not about the money. The money's going to come. I have this thing to where I'm always going to make sure my client gets more money than anybody else. And you think to yourself, man, it sounds like a bad business decision when the actuality is not because it's twofold. You make sure you un that, that client understands, listen, we're doing this for you. You're one person. We go through 3,000 cases a year. So you've been in a situation where you are okay is more important than this little bit of money because we're going to make it up on the back end. We're going to make it up collectively as an, in an aggregate. But for you, that's the most important thing. So that's how we, that's how we lead our practice. Yeah. I love it. And, and looking back, was there a particular case or just something that happened that was kind of the catalyst behind a lot of this, just your personal and professional growth? Any, anything that you think back on, you were saying like that specific case it either evolved me in this way or changed my perspective, anything like that? Yeah, I can I can think back to a case that I heard I had very early on in my career. It lasts for so long. It was probably a six or seven year process. We represented this family. It was in Memphis. It was a dog bite case. And this older gentleman, I think he was like 72 years old, 
He was walking from his house to the store. And it was an apartment complex in between his house and the store. Somebody who was living in an apartment complex had some vicious pit bulls. And the pit bulls used to get out of the neighborhood and menace everybody. And on this particular day, the pit bulls were free. And when the police finally showed up to get the pit bulls and, and put them away, get the, the, the owner to put them away, they ran the owner's name. He was a sex offender. And he wasn't registered at that address. So they told him to put the dogs up in the apartment. They were going to take him to jail for being in violation of the sex offender registry. Well... With him going to jail and nobody there to care for the dogs, the dogs were running amok in the apartment. And somebody downstairs, I think, called and said the dogs were either chewing on the pipes or come to find out they had they were stuck in the house so long by themselves, free just running around. They were urinating all over the house and they were dripping down into the apartment below. So the downstairs neighbor called the landlord. Landlord sent somebody over to check on the apartment. He opened the door and saw the, these maniac pit bulls running crazy. He opened the door and ran off and they ran out of the neighborhood. And my guy just happened to be walking down the street. They attacked him. Vicious, violent attack. He ended up having a heart attack. His daughter, his family, different people in the community were trying to run down and save him. But he died. So we ended up trying that case, and it took years to get to trial. And we eventually, during that litigation, the, the wife died. And it was only a, the family was the decedent, the dad, the mom, and the daughter. That's all they had. Just They just had each other. And... The dad died. Mom died during the pendency of the litigation. So at, at trial, I only had the daughter, who was an adult at the time. We ended up trying that case, and we won, I want to say, five, $2.6 million. And the judge reduced that case by half, saying that that man wasn't worth that much. That shook me to my core because I could never in a million years think that I, I struggle with how much money to ask for on that case, but I struggle with trying to, to figure out how much money to ask for. And I came up with a number that made sense to me, and the judge said that this person's life wasn't worth that much. So, again, it goes to who are we to put a price on somebody's life like that? And he cut it in half, and we ended up taking the court of appeals, and they upheld the judge's decision, which, you know, Judges do what judges do. Court of appeals, they're judges just like the trial court. So they all kind of, so they all stick together like police. <laughs> but at the end of the day, my client, my remaining client was so happy, not about the money, but about the justice she got that day. Getting a chance to tell her story and, and, and being heard. And fast forward after that trial, maybe two, maybe three years after that, I walked her down the aisle. She didn't have anybody left. And she called me and said, could you walk me down the aisle? And I did, and we've, we've been close ever since. That's kind of the thing that you give a little bit of yourself every time you take on somebody's case because you can't do it any other way. Like, it's just not about the money, you know what I mean? Like, I just can't focus on, oh, how much is this case worth? Oh, I take that case, I'll put some energy into that. If I take your case, I'm going to war for you. That's how I was raised. Like, you know, I talk about that all the time. Like, you know, a warrior doesn't fight because he hates what's in front of him. He fights because he loves what's behind him. That's how I am. That's how I was raised. That's what was instilled in me as a child. And that's just, I don't even, I feel completely at peace and comfortable with being in a situation where I'm fighting for somebody. To round out this lineup, we're looking back at my conversation with Adam Alter, the best-selling author of Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. 
During our conversation, Adams shared his research into the psychological factors that contribute to feeling stuck, both personally and professionally, as well as proven strategies to overcome these obstacles. So I think of stuckness, there are a few essential ingredients as I think of it for this book. The first one is that it's got to be protracted stuckness. I'm not talking about you know, the momentary frustrations that we all have every single day. I'm talking about the kinds of things that plague you for months, maybe years, maybe decades, maybe even a whole lifetime in some cases. I'm also interested in the kinds of things that are susceptible to intervention from us. And so there are kinds of stuckness where you just don't really have much of a choice. You're in a situation that's not perhaps where you want to be, but it's just where you are. Think about what happened to the world in March 2020. We were all stuck in place. We weren't allowed to travel the government had decided that that was the best thing in that moment. And there are some psychologically interesting questions about that. But to me, the more interesting thing and what I focus on here is the majority of cases of stuckness that are, I think, susceptible to strategy and intervention, where we have some agency and we can make positive changes in our own lives and the lives of other people. And so it's protracted and also susceptible to intervention. Got it. And early on, I know in the book, you state that the first step to getting unstuck is accepting that barriers are universal. If you could elaborate on that. Yeah, I think that's really important. One of the, the really interesting psychological features of stuckness is it's one of these ideas that we recognize that globally speaking, everyone has problems. We get stuck sometimes. Sometimes we can't move forward. But when it actually happens to you, it feels almost like a personal affront. It feels very isolating. Even though I've been collecting these responses from people around the world for many years, now I've got thousands of responses Basically, everyone is stuck in at least one or two respects. They are very quick to draw those to mind and to explain what they are. But then they also say, I feel alone. This is very isolating. I don't feel good about it. And yet they're all saying that. And so the sort of loneliness of being stuck and the sense that it's a sort of personal and very idiosyncratic experience that just is about your life is problematic and it really hampers us. There's also a very interesting cultural difference between the West and the East on this front. So in the West, in places like the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, we tend to anticipate that things are going to continue the way they have been. And that means when things change, which they inevitably do, we're blindsided by that change. And we're quite slow to get used to the idea that we're going to be stuck if we keep doing what we're doing. In the East, in places like Japan, South Korea, and China, a lot of the religious philosophies and philosophies generally, Eastern philosophies, understand that there's a kind of shift between endpoints, Taoism, the yin-yang, and what that does is it makes you nimble in the face of change. You anticipate it, and when it arrives, you don't feel blindsided. You just say, all right, well, let's get on with it. Let's figure it out. That sense of acceptance that, you know, this is where I am, and now I need to do something about it is very important. And I know later in the book, you talk about just the mindset that we could have towards challenges and struggles. I know many people often view these negatively, but you emphasize that they actually are indicators of progress and growth. How can you know, people who are listening to this podcast or leaders just reframe their perception of challenges and leverage them into opportunities for growth? Broadly speaking, there are two ways to think of something that's hard. One way is to do what is, I think, human instinct and to see it as a threat. It's nice to do things that are easy. There's a reason we spend hours and hours watching Netflix and scrolling through social media platforms and eight hours a day on our phones and things like that. It's easy and a lot of life feels hard. And so we, we seek out the easy. And that makes total sense from a human energy apportionment perspective. You know, I understand why people do that and I do the same to an extent. But it's the things that are hard, that are beneficial, not just now, but in the very long run. I think they make us stronger. We know that. We've talked about that. They make us more resilient in the face of challenges that might come up later on. But it's really interesting. If you speak to people at the end of their lives, you ask them to look back on the things that they found most rewarding or the things that were you know, most disappointing. 
no one ever says, I wish I hadn't said yes to that challenge. It just, that's never a response you hear. You never hear someone say, I really regret taking on a challenge. And no one really says, I wish I hadn't done that thing that I failed at. What they usually say is, I kind of wish I had done more. I'd said yes more often, that I'd done the hard things. And I regret that I'm now at this point where I don't have that option anymore. But it's those periods where we feel really alive, when we're making progress, when we're moving forward. And so I think you sort of owe it to your future self to take on those challenges, both because it makes you stronger when that future self deals with really big hardship, which comes up in life, but also because at the end of our lives, that's where we derive the most meaning from. And so I think it's worthwhile, if only for that reason. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting was when you're talking about the role that age seems to play in entrepreneurial success. Like mm -hmm. you know, one would think that sometimes the younger founders would be more successful, but the data shows it's those who are sometimes in their 40s and 50s experience higher rates of success and even more successful exits. Why is that? I mean, is it just experience? Is it knowledge? What do you attribute that to? Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of discussion about prodigies and precocious talent and young people who are very successful. And it makes total sense that we focus on that because that's on a certain level, that's more unusual. That's more surprising. The idea that with less skill, with less experience, people might succeed suggests that they've acquired more of, of some valuable attribute that is required for success more quickly than other people do. And so that's that's always interesting. And that, that gets the lion's share of attention in articles that are written in movies and so on. But when you do that, when you have a particular thing that's interesting because it's eccentric, you forget about the majority. And the majority is such that we get better over time. Certainly our cognitive capacity declines a little bit over time and quite rapidly in old age. But as adults get more mature, they, by definition, have more success. They know more things just by virtue of having been alive for longer. They have failed more, which is really important. They've had more chances to fail. It's true they've had more chances to succeed, but it, what's more important is they've had more chances to fail. And so that means if this is your 27th attempt at a venture, you're creating a business or whatever it might be, some creative pursuit, you know 27 things that don't work. And so you're by definition, diverging from that big chunk of things that didn't work and getting closer and closer to things that do work. And so it's not surprising. It's only surprising the backdrop of all this written about young people, but it's not surprising that people in their 40s and 50s tend to generally be more successful entrepreneurs. And I'm curious on the topic of failure. It's like, where do you draw the line, right? Because generally what seems to work well is if there's been some sort of behavioral change that's resulted as a result of somebody learning from this failure and making different decisions. So I'm curious at what point is it seen as like failure as an asset versus this person just makes bad decisions? Yeah. I mean, it sort of depends, right? You've got to be, you've got to be a bit of a human psychologist. You've got to think about what this particular failure represents. There's failure at very basic tasks. And there's failure at extensions, tasks that are designed to challenge. There's failure that comes from doing something different. There's failure at, from trying something different. I think for me, the biggest hat tip that people get for failure or should get, from me at least, as far as I'm concerned, is when they say, you know, everyone's doing this one thing and it seems to be successful at like a seven out of 10. That's not what I want. I want an eight or a nine or a 10. And so what I'm gonna go out and do is I'm gonna try five different approaches that I might fail at. All five of them might be failures, but at least at the end of that, I'll know the answer to the question, is there a better way? I talk about this Olympian who swam for the, the US Olympic team in 1988 and 1992, Dave Burkoff. And he was not built like a lot of the backstroke swimmers of the time and, and today as well. The average world record holder is six foot three or six foot four. He was about 5'10". 
It's a very big difference. It's half a foot difference. But he was incredibly curious and he was an experimentalist by nature, which basically means that he had this philosophy, I'm not going to take anything for granted. That's how kids usually think. They ask a million questions because nothing is orthodoxy for them. They don't yet know that this is just the way things are done because they're done that way. And Burkhoff was like that. So he would try different things as he was swimming and he would do the backstroke with a slightly different tweak and then a different tweak from that and a third tweak. Because he was inquisitive and analytic, he started to recognize that when his entire body was immersed under the water, he swam much faster. But naturally, when your whole body's underwater you, and you're, you're exerting yourself, your body cries out for oxygen. So the instinct of everyone who'd ever swum before was to pop out of the water as soon as possible and grab a pull of oxygen. And Burkhoff talks about training his body to stay underwater for longer. So instead of the 10 meters that everyone was spending at the beginning of the backstroke, he would do 15 and then 20 and then 25 to the point where he was doing 40, 45 meters underwater, almost the first lap of the pool on a 100 meter swim, a two lap race. And he found out that you swim about 80% faster when you're fully immersed. And he broke world records. So this tweak, the highest form of payback you can get in swimming is to break a world record. And all he did basically was ask the question. And so he failed probably a thousand times with techniques before that but it was those failures that paved the way in this case for a colossal success. I want to give a huge thank you to every guest who's joined me so far this year on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.